You know, I really define power as the ability to envision the just world that you desire and the access, resources, confidence, and capabilities to go do your part to create it. Hello, and welcome to a special season of the Shiftmakers podcast presented by Tandem. I'm your host, Marianne Schnall, a writer and journalist. Over the course of my two-decade career, I've enjoyed the incredible honor of interviewing a variety of remarkable changemakers, and it is my pleasure to share some of these insights from the past and present with you for this podcast. The United Nations estimates it will take nearly 300 years to achieve gender equality. In this season of Shiftmakers, we partner with Tandem to bring you conversations with leaders across sectors who are disrupting and reimagining systems to accelerate that timeline. You'll hear their powerful visions of a gender equal world, how they are demonstrating that within their own work, and what actions we can all take to get there. Welcome to Shiftmakers. In our previous episode on New Paradigms of Power, you heard part of my conversation with activist and organizer Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Today, I wanted to share that full interview with you all, as Brittany offers incredible wisdom about a broad range of topics. In this extended interview, you hear her visions for a gender-equal world, why it's so important that we shift and expand our views of power, her personal evolution as a leader, what support Black women need to advance in leadership, and her personal journey of building confidence, the topic of her viral TED Talk. But first, here's a bit more about Brittany. Over the last decade, as racialized police violence and the Black Lives Matter movement brought to the forefront of the national conversation America's urgent need to dismantle systemic racism, Brittany Packnett Cunningham was a leading voice offering guidance, perspective, and solutions to reach lasting change. She is the Vice President of Social Impact at BET, an NBC News and MSNBC political analyst, and host of Undistracted, a news and justice podcast with an intersectional lens on the world. A lifelong activist and proud member of the Ferguson Uprising, Brittany was co-host of the 2019 iHeartRadio Best Political Podcast, Pod Save the People, for three years, and a three-time fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Her 2019 TED Talk on the Revolution of Confidence has garnered over 7 million views worldwide, making it one of the top 10 most popular TED Talks of 2019. Brittany is the author of the forthcoming book, We Are Like Those Who Dream. She has been named one of Time Magazine's 12 New Faces of Black Leadership, honored at the BET Awards as one of the fiercest activists of our time, and former President Obama has said of her, her voice is going to be making a difference for years to come. Brittany plays many roles, all focused on freedom. To start with, what paradigms do we have today that you feel should or could look differently in a world where power is shared equally amongst all genders and, and sort of just more broadly across all humankind? Well, you know, I'm so glad to be in conversation with you, and I'm so glad that you are doing a season-long conversation about this, right? Because there is there are so many layers to dig under here. And I think a lot of people like to put the quote-unquote gender conversation on one episode of their show or their podcast, you know, one post from their blog or one video on their TikTok, and then we're good. We can wipe our hands. The whole thing is solved. Or, you know, I played my part and made my contribution. When, again, this is so layered, so multidimensional, and it 
indicates things for all of us individually, as well as the rituals, traditions, systems, regulations, rules, and institutions that we all engage in, and that all of us have some level of power in, right? Because our family is an institution in which we have power, right? Our places of worship are similar institutions. Our schools, where our tax dollars go, where you've enrolled your child, right? We talk about capital S systems and capital I institutions, but they're all these lowercase I institutions that we're engaged with every day. If you lead a team at work, if you lead a place of worship, certainly if you lead a larger system, but also if you manage a family, if you are engaged with your neighbors, if you say hi to people on the block, those are all places um, that require our shifting in how we comport ourselves with one another and in how we update our systems to be responsive and conducive to the world that we want. So that said, I think the most central shift that we can make is transitioning how we think about, how we talk about, how we position power itself. And if we position it as something that is abundant, that is innate to all of us, and something that deserves nurturing in all of us, both because that is a moral right, but also because from a state of productivity and effectiveness, all of us are better when all of us can operate in our full power. That is a far better thing than for us to continuously see power as a finite resource, right? It's something that does not exist in abundance and therefore we have to hoard whatever little or big piece of it we've got, right? So that is why, you know, as a black woman, I'm still saying to black men, you've got to unlearn your patriarchy because life has beat you up in so many other ways as a black person and as a black man uniquely, and so you're willing to hold on to the power that patriarchy gives you, even though it harms me, your sister, your friend, your cousin, your daughter, right? That is why we can say to people, cisgender women, right? That um, actually the, the privilege that you receive from being visibly cisgender, actually cisgender, is not something that you should be hoarding from your trans sisters because you actually diminishing their personhood doesn't make you any more free. It doesn't make society any more free. It doesn't shift any of those capital I or small I institutions that we need to be shifting to achieve a sense of gender justice. So when you talk about a sharing power, we first have to understand power differently. We have to treat it differently. We have to position it differently as something that we are all made better by when everybody has full access to it. And then I think that the other major thing is shifting this understanding that we can only get to freedom and justice one at a time, right? They're like, oh, now it's Black men's turn. Oh, now it's, uh, you know, cisgender women's turn. Oh, now it's the white women's turn, but the Black women are left behind. We've done that before, and it didn't get us very far. Mm -hmm. I often point to the suffragette movement where, yes, there were leaders of diverse backgrounds that you had Black women that were absolutely essential to that movement, many of whom are lesser known than their white counterparts who were essential to that movement. 
some of their white counterparts absolutely embraced that diversity. And there were others who, like Susan B. Anthony, unfortunately said, I would rather give this arm of mine than to uh, get the right to vote for the Negro and not the woman. Because what she did in that statement is not only separate all of the Black folks that had been engaged in that movement, that had been lifting up that movement, that had been fueling that movement, she also removed personhood from Black women. Because what she inherently said is that if you are a woman, you are white. And if you are Black, you are a man. Meanwhile, she was sharing space with Black women who made it possible for her to do what she did. White women get the right to vote in 1920, and then it is another 40 years until Black women win that right. And they win it as a part of a civil rights and racial justice movement that they still had to insert themselves in because the Ella Bakers and the Fannie Lou Hamers were often rendered to the background, right? Mm -hmm. We still are seeing that kind of inequity in voting for immigrant women and indigenous women and black women. My point is that it's not freedom if we don't all get there together. If we simply focus on our movements being efficient and thus one group of people can walk through the door at a time and everybody else needs to wait their turn, then what we will find perpetually is that our movements have been insufficient despite their efficiency. We're going to have to keep going back and starting over. And that's not a movement I'm interested in. Wow, there's so much truth. And everything that you said, most everything in the world right now needs to be looked at in through that like intersectional lens. It was funny because one of the, you spoke to like one of the, the quotes from you that I was remembering when you and I talked, you know, as a society, we have to recognize that we actually don't operate in scarcity. We operate for the most part in abundance. And there actually is enough for everyone if we leverage things responsibly and allow people to share power instead of allowing just a tiny few to actually hoard power. So you were just talking about that. And how do you define power and, you know, what it means for sharing it? And how do you view differences in leadership across gender and other identities? You know, I really define power as the ability to envision the just world that you desire and the access, resources, confidence, and capabilities to go do your part to create it. For me, that's two parts, right? That you actually have the freedom to dream, the space to imagine. And when we think about the violence of poverty, when we think about the motherhood tax, when we think about our inability in America as a uh, supposedly advanced nation to properly provide childcare and family care for people, you know, with children, for people caring for elders, for people who are disabled, for people who need additional medical support. When we think about all of those things, it leaves very little room for dreaming. Not to mention the transphobia, the homophobia, the racism, the Islamophobia, the anti-Semitism, the ableism, the xenophobia that also prevents us from dreaming every day, right? There are studies that show us that workplaces are so toxic for Black women that we are aging on average seven and a half years faster than the white women we work next to. Imagine being older than you are in your body, in your spirit, in your mind, and trying to have the room to dream. Mm -hmm. It is a radical act to make that room for yourself and to be consistent in the practice of radical imagination, to even envision what that world can look like, mm -hmm. to read the things, to hear the speeches, to have the dialogues, to be in community that give you space and fodder to dream and imagine is already so hard to do 
when you are a woman or hold a gender expansive identity in a world that is hostile toward us. Mm-hmm. And then if you manage to find the time to dream and imagine and you get yourself around some people who help and encourage you to do it, then you got to figure out how to go play your part. Mm-hmm. And now we're talking about all of the limited resources, all of the um, closed doors and uh, restricted access, right? We're talking about all of those same isms then compounding your ability and capacity to actually go and engage. We look at uh, women who decide that they're going to run for office and they say, that is going to be my contribution to create that world I can imagine. And then they get out there and they have way more trouble raising money than everybody else. Mm -hmm. And black women and Latino women and Asian women are having even more trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Trans folks are having even more trouble, right? So how can I access my role if I can't actually build the community around me to help resource me being in said role. Corey Bush had to run three times in my Mm -hmm. hometown of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. That is a very expensive proposition, especially when your opponent is a decades long incumbent who is the heir to a a, a seat uh, that was was sat in by his father, Mm -hmm. who was a legend. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I, I recognize her story and so many others as representative of what it can look like um, to to finally be able to dream a world, as one of my favorite Black photo books is called, um, and to finally be able to envision your role in creating it, and then finally being able, after three tries, to actually get in the position to effectuate some of that change. Um, we owe that a lot of honor and respect. And um, I think that there's a there's a world in which we have to look very, very critically and with a very detailed lens to dismantle all of those barriers, both to the radical imagination and to the performance of your role in achieving that. Now, we're also talking about leadership in this conversation. I mean, looking at the world, I, I think we can see with all the dysfunction and all the inequity that there is right now in terms of people that are in leadership roles, and we don't just need people to become leaders, but to transform also how we think about leadership. So what values or attributes do you think we most need in the world today? And wh- like, what is your own sort of philosophy or our own personal leadership style? I was speaking to a group of HBCU young women a few weeks ago. One of the things I implored for them to to do is one of the things I've been really learning and trying to center myself in, especially as my leadership has become far more visible than I ever anticipated, is that we have to be impeccable with our integrity. Mm -hmm. We just have to be. That does not mean that you always have to be right. In fact, it means being humble enough, receptive enough, and grateful enough to be taught differently and to be invited into your own evolution. So using a very, very personal example, 
that I don't talk about very frequently. You know, in 2014, during the Ferguson uprising, I found myself in a position that I didn't know I would be taking, but that I realized so much of my upbringing, so much of my activism since elementary school and through college and my adult life, so much of the career path that I had chosen lended itself toward being able to perform that duty. Because I kind of found myself in position to be a bridge, if you will, between the community of organizers and protesters that I found myself very blessed to be a part of out in the streets to policymakers and funders and these kind of elite folks I was in regular and respected contact with because I was running a very large education nonprofit at the time. And there were people who did not want me to be that bridge because we have to remember bridges burn. <laughs> um, there are people who did not want me to be that bridge, especially on the elite side, right? They said, we didn't hire you to do that stuff in the streets with all those, you know, quote unquote thugs. We hired you to like run this thing the way we wanted you to run it. And in some ways I was a little confused because I was like, now you knew who I was when you hired me. And I, I was leading that organization at home. And I'm like, you knew who my daddy was. You know who my mama is. So like, let's not even play that game. I don't know why you're surprised. But I also realized that if so many parts of my career and my life had been preparing me to be able to speak to two different groups of people, I had to maintain clarity that I was saying the same thing to all people, because what being a bridge can be is a connective tissue that helps us toward solutions. What it must not ever be is me placing myself in a position of import and trying to protect my own ego and my, my sense of self-importance by changing my message based on my audience. That is not being impeccable with your integrity. People cannot trust somebody like that. Those kind of people cannot effectuate truly just change. The most that they can effectuate is money in their pocket. And then people will figure out you're a charlatan, right? Like it is a, that is a short lived grift. <laughs> and it is not one that I have ever been interested in. And so even if my packaging changed, because I know that there are certain things that you know, when you translate them, if you will, for a particular audience that they're more receptive to, but the message cannot change. Mm -hmm. That said, since 2014, I engaged in a lot of work around police violence. I was on President Obama's commission. I was on the Ferguson commission. And I co-founded this thing called Campaign Zero with people I was friends with and had built community with because we were all out in the streets together. And when we started Campaign Zero in 2015, I had a very clear set of beliefs and ideas about what I thought was going to solve the problem. And those ideas evolved for me personally. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful to those who wrote about, you know, wrote about it, like my friend Derricka Purnell, who's written an incredible book about abolition, right? And and actually identifying her own journey and moving to a place of being in a, a police and, and carceral abolitionist and saying like, this journey wasn't easy. And I had to question myself a lot. And so I'm going to put myself in front of you all as an example of what that can look like and be vulnerable about that, right? That helped me be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I, there are so many public thinkers and scholars and organizers, you know, of the past, of the current times that would just 
ask the right questions at the right time. Sometimes to me, sometimes to their audience. And I just happened to be somebody reading. Miriam Cobble was one of those people for me. And so as I'm still in the process, frankly, of evolving on that, I decided to part ways with Campaign Zero in part because there was work that they were doing in 2020 that not only was very divergent from the way my own politic had evolved, but I didn't believe that it was being presented in a way that was helpful to where we were in the moment of 2020, because between 2014 and 2020, the zeitgeist, the cultural zeitgeist and the revolution of ideas and imagination had moved much further faster than I think many of us, myself included, had anticipated. Mm -hmm. So where in 2014, we were talking about body cameras and we were talking about uh, diversifying police forces. And those were things that made sense to me. In 2020, we're talking about police budgets and why these bloated budgets full of our tax dollars Mm -hmm. are going into institutions that not only kill us with impunity, but don't even perform their professed service in the community to any level that should render them with bigger budgets, right? Because if if you failed that badly at your job, you would be fired. You wouldn't get a raise. And we were giving police uh, departments raises every single year in most cities across the country. Um, So suddenly we were talking about divestment. We were talking about moving money from the things that are not working to the things that truly keep us safe, like mental health care, like ending houselessness, like um, gun violence prevention and intervention work that is happening in community, right? Mm -hmm. So in that evolution, there was conflict. There was a lot of public speculation. There were people who never liked me who were using that as their moment to sail off into the sun and take their chunk of flesh. There were people who were confused. There were people who didn't want to pay any attention to it because frankly, there was far more going on than what some people wanted to turn into movement drama. Mm -hmm. And when I finally decided to speak publicly about it, I wanted to be impeccable with my integrity. My desire was not to throw anybody under the bus. My desire was not to to, um, impede people who felt like they were doing the right work. My desire was not to be holier than thou. My desire was to frankly redirect the energy that comes with movement drama back into the movement to say, actually what's going on here is really not the point. The point is that there are all of these people in Minneapolis, in Louisville, in New York, in St. Louis, in Florida, in California, who are doing the important work And so like, if I can use my platform, if I can use this moment where you're paying attention to me because of the quote unquote drama Mm -hmm. to try to redirect your attention, your time, your treasure, your talent to supporting them Mm -hmm. as I do the same, Mm -hmm. then that is a much better use of my time. Mm -hmm. That's a much better use of my voice. And so I, I, and and I had people, frankly, that the next week I didn't even know were paying attention to any of that stuff, mm-hmm. reach out to me and tell me that they appreciated the way that I approached that. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't affirming to my ego. It affirmed the choice that I had to continually make to try to operate always in impeccable integrity, mm-hmm. to say I'm wrong when I'm wrong, to mm-hmm. learn when I am, and to make sure that I do what is the best apology, which is change my behavior that when I learn better, I do better and I teach better, I mm-hmm. share better, um, and that I 
don't change my central values simply because the moment has changed, the zeitgeist has shifted and people are mad at me. And so, you know, there are lots of values that I think are important, but if I, if I lay myself on the, you know, on the block for a second and, and, and vulnerable myself, that has been the one that has been of almost singular importance to my leadership journey. And I believe it will continue to be. The word integrity come, is definitely something that I think we can all agree is something sorely lacking in a lot of leadership today and is something that is so needed. Also, this notion of, which I know is something that we all feel passionately about, is just the diversity of, of leadership, which is, of course, another area. There's so much inequity. And one of the nice things about having interviewed you before is that I get to go back and get some of the things <laughs> that you said. I know, we get said. to chat all the time. I love it. I know. We are missing out on the brilliance of so many people. This is you. That society is told to be quiet. Women, women of color, immigrant women, Muslim women, Je Jewish women, disabled women, and trans women. We're all losing out when we silence voices, when we discourage confidence and ambition. And the sooner we can realize that, the sooner we all benefit from the ambitious women that society seems so afraid of. So in the lens of what this whole season is about, can you talk about that? I mean, some of this may be obvious to us, but why do we need more women and more diversity in our leaders? And we know how slow this has been. What can we do to accelerate the change that's needed to create you know, a more gender just equal world? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is give all of the people who aspire to leadership who are not men, who are not cisgender men, permission to operate in their own archetype of leadership. Because for so long, what we have learned is that if we are going to break the glass ceiling, it is because we are the best at playing a man's game. We are the best at parroting men, mimicking men. We're the toughest. We're the sharpest. And I don't care if you, can I curse? I don't know care if you call me a bitch, right? Like bitches get things done. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be tougher, stronger, faster, sharper than any man in the game. And that's how I'm going to win. And to be frank, that is how a lot of women trailblazers, gender expansive trailblazers have broken through the glass ceiling, have opened the door for the rest of us because that was the only thing that they were allowed to do because there was a singular archetype of leadership. Mm -hmm. But if we really are to be better as a society and truly benefit from when people across the gender spectrum have to offer to leadership, then it requires us to expand what a leader can look like, sound like, how they behave, how they show up. So we can't actually be afraid to show up in the cultural values that are natural to us. We can't be afraid to show up in the things that we have learned and the sensibilities that we've gained from our gender identity in our leadership roles. And people have to ensure, people in power have to ensure that they are not restricting our ability to do that, right? Mm -hmm. I remember when I first started leading that nonprofit, we had a staff of about 22 and I was, I was young. I was 27. Um, I had, we had like a $4 million budget. We had 50,000 students in our care across the city. It was a major, major job, especially for a 27-year-old. And there was so much pressure to come in and just do what the last guy did. But, and then I was like, okay, but the last guy ain't here no more. <laughs> so if the last guy ain't here no more and I'm here, then I need to be who I am when I'm here. I remember the first day as my predecessor, 
was kind of orienting me to some things and some systems. He gave me a list of a hundred people. He said, this needs to be the first hundred people you call. Mm-hmm. 99 of the people were white and 94 of the people were men. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh? <laughs> so if these have been the folks you've been calling, perhaps this is why there's some things that need adjusting. So I didn't, you know, I didn't say all that to the man. I was just like, thanks so much. I'll consider it. And given that that was, that's my, like, that's my city. That's, that's my turf. I, I know this place. Like I met a lot of these people in the interview process. If I didn't know them before and plenty of people I've been knowing since I was knee high to a grasshopper. So I'll make my own list. <laughs> it will be filled not only with people of, of other genders and races, but also people of positionality that you didn't deem important on here. I'm going to go talk to some pastors and some imams right? I'm going to go talk to some community leaders. I'm going to go talk to some veteran teachers who've been doing this for 30 plus years. I'm going to go talk to some community organizers. I'm going to go talk to somebody who's been running the after school program for 20 years that like half the students at this school go to, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk to the donors. I'm going to talk to the superintendents. Those people are all important too. The truth is my list wasn't 100, it was 200. And I decided that I was going to spend my first three months on a listening tour and every single person I sat down with, that was my opening line. I said, hi, I'm so thankful for you giving me your time. I'm on a three month listening tour. I'm not trying to make uninformed decisions. I'm not trying to have a hot take on everything. I am trying to gain the context that I need to be effective in this role. One of the other things that happened was that I walked into a, as a, you know, like a smaller side, I walked into a staff, like I said, of 22 where our all staff meetings had some of the tightest agendas I had ever seen. Like it was like five minutes for this, seven and a half minutes for this, 20 minutes for this. And you'd have them. And so, you know, that listening to where those first three months, I let the meetings go on like that. And I realized that the meetings were highly ineffective because you couldn't actually get into the depth that you needed to, because we were trying to cover too much breadth Mm -hmm. and we were not letting anything actually just breathe and like exist and give people real think time so that we could benefit from the confidence of their best ideas. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I brought I brought my churchy background in, <laughs> right? My The culture I grew up in where sometimes church is an hour and a half and sometimes it's three hours because the spirit is going to move or people are going to tarry, do what's called tearing where they literally like bow or kneel, you know, at the pulpit or, you know, before the Lord waiting on the Lord to come in, right? And answer, and that can that can take an hour, right? And patience is actually a virtue. So I started asking my team leads to start deciphering between what, A, what needed to go in an all-staff meeting and B, what should be going in a leadership team meeting and C, what should be going in a one-on-one with us. Mm-hmm. Because if we start to correctly identify and, and triage those things, there won't be as many things on the agenda. And the same amount of time, we can actually leave time for discussion, rebuttal, conflict that can often be a catalyst, think time, talk time, you know, relationship building time, right? Um, Because I was like, the agenda is the agenda. And there were sometimes we didn't get through the whole agenda and we adjust Mm -hmm. because the meeting that needed to happen did happen. Mm-hmm. But if I were concerning myself with just being one of the guys mm-hmm. and just being a black version of the white guy who had come before mm-hmm. me, we wouldn't have gotten to any of that stuff. And we certainly wouldn't have gotten 
to a lot of the outcomes that I'm very grateful our team worked very, very hard toward in the four years that I was there. Well, and, and by the way, speaking of like, I'm trying, I have so I could talk to you for probably an hour and a half. So I'm going to try to make choices of some of my questions. So how can we best support black women's leadership? Like what support do black women need that they're not getting? Uh, resourcing and community. To start with the latter first, we often find community among each other ourselves, right? But that spirit of community can be often threatened when what we're expected to do is always operate in a spirit of competition, mm -hmm. which is a vestige of white supremacy culture. It's a vestige of patriarchy culture. And it is not something we have to embrace if we don't want it. And so actually creating the space and making sure that it is safe for community among Black women to exist is one. But the other truly, truly is resources. And I mean that in a very literal way. I have a t-shirt that says, pay me like a white man. And I pull up that picture every Black women's payday because yeah, no, when you are hiring me for a job or to give a talk or to consult with your company or whatever, I want you to think about what you wrote, the check that you wrote a white man to do this. And frankly, I want you to add tax, but at base, you should start with whatever you offered him, mm -hmm. right? The resources we know are lacking in terms of salary and pay. They're lacking desperately in terms of, you know, more general funding, right? VC funding, nonprofit fundraising. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an attack that is currently being waged by Edward Bloom, who is the architect of ending affirmative action at the Supreme Court level. It's been a decades-long project for him. And then he turned his sights on organizations like the Fearless Fund. And the Fearless Fund has been getting that 1% to 2% of VC funding that has been going to women of color and to Black women and trying to increase that share because we are some of the most prolific entrepreneurs and founders in the entire country. And yet the VC portfolios do not reflect that. Mm -hmm. So they said, we'll build our own grant programs. We will build our own competition rounds. We'll teach how to fundraise. We'll teach how to do a series A and a series B and all of these things that feel so far away because so often we are not given access to that knowledge. And so Edward Bloom comes along and says, this is a racist and discriminatory practice and takes them to court. Mm -hmm. And the Fearless Fund has lost the first lawsuit. So of course, they're going to appeal and pursue justice and whatnot, but if this makes it all the way up to the Supreme Court, if it even makes it up to federal and district courts that we know have been stacked by judges selected by a conservative few, their chances aren't very good. Mm -hmm. And so here we are trying to take corrective action on our own and finding the people who want to support us in doing that and are still getting the access revoked. We're still getting the new pathway revoked. We're still getting the creative pathway revoked. If the Fearless Fund and others like it are not able to survive as an example, then anybody listening to this who has any kind of impact on how any budget is given out should be thinking about how they go and replicate and replace what the Fearless Fund has done around the lawsuits of Edward Bloom. Mm -hmm. How they go and get creatively subversive because the Fearless Fund has to figure out how they're going to operate now. So truly community and the permission to exist in that community and not in competition and resources, like people really do win when they give us the money and they get out of the way. A lot of people seem to have forgotten that since 2020, but we're still here and we're still doing the work. Do you feel hopeful? And I know one of the questions that we're just going to be asking a lot of people in this season is what is your vision for a gender just world? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I, for me, it, it, is, it is the Kingian definition of peace, right? That it is not 
merely the absence of violence, but it, that it is the presence of justice. Mm. Dr. Cornell West says that justice is what love looks like in public, right? Mm. So for me, that world looks like not just the absence of the violence of poverty and the violence of underpay and the violence of a lack of care and the the challenge of constantly being othered and having to justify your worth. Um, but it also means the presence of systems, policies at all levels from federal to workplace and everything in between that are not only friendly to the gender spectrum, but are affirming of all the ways we show up, right? Are welcoming and not just give us belonging, but actually propel us to be our best, right? Mm -hmm. That to me is what that gender justice looks like in the world. Mm, I love that. And you, you know, right now you're so in your truth and sound so confident. And then it was funny because I was looking at your Instagram post. You wrote that you could have not predicted your TED Talk on confidence has been seen over 7.5 million times and still gets posts four years later. So I just wanted you to reflect. And you actually did say in that in that caption, confidence was the biggest struggle in my entire life and still is. So can you talk just briefly your personal journey on that? Why and why is that such a struggle for women? And do you have any advice or lessons learned from your your own kind of journey on this issue? You know, my mind is still totally blown. It's been translated into over 22 languages and I get messages from people all over the world who tell me that they have written down the quotes and put them up, you know, on their mirror, that they watch it once a month when they feel like they need a boost of confidence or a reminder about how to go and capture that that confidence again for themselves. And I'm so humbled to have been a vehicle and a vessel for people who need some of that. And in truth, it was a speech other, clearly other people needed to hear, but it was also a speech I needed to give to actually put into practice some of the things that I know to be true and that I share with other people. I often tell the story that I was on stage with somebody who I, who was like some kind of like literal rocket scientist who like, you know, had like discovered parts of a new galaxy or something. And now I'm coming on in a pink suit to talk about confidence. I was like, this feels a little incongruent. I don't know if I'm smart enough to be up here on this famous red circle. And then those lights hit and I looked past billionaire row, the people who had flown in on private jets. I looked even past the kind of thousand person audience that is invited to join the actual TED conference. And I thought about, I really tried to speak through the cameras to the people like the little black girl in me who needed to see a black girl in a pink suit come after somebody who had just talked about discovering part of a new galaxy and declare that a revolutionary of confidence, especially for those of us who are often shunned from showing it, Black women especially, were receiving an invitation for me to practice it anyway. And I was trying to talk to those people because I was trying to talk to myself. There's a gospel song called Encourage Yourself. And it says, you know, basically when you are sometimes, as she says, as I encourage you, oh, I'm ministering to myself too. And that was one of those moments for me. Um, and so for me, really that journey has been about stealing myself in, in my values has been about knowing that doing good is better than looking good and being right. And that if I can lay my head down at the end of the day and stand in what I said and what I did, then that is confidence making. And the, in, in the moments when I can't stand in it, like how do I work through it and acknowledge my harm, repair the harm and move forward in a better way? That is also confidence making because I can look back at that and say, I did that so I can do this. 
and to know that it is truly a, a practice, you know, and for me, like my struggle with confidence was about attending predominantly white schools most of my life. It was about being in, frankly, emotionally abusive relationships where I learned the sound of everything but my own voice. It was it was being the firstborn and a girl, which means you feel responsible for everything and everybody else all the time. And you put yourself last and you begin to internalize the idea that you deserve the last fruits instead of the first fruits. Is all of those things compounded with a socialization that tells all of us who are not men that we can only prove our value in certain ways. And if you don't fit those archetypes, you don't have any value at all. And and battling that has been, like I said, it's still a struggle. It's still a practice that I have to engage in. And I have to be honest with myself when I'm not engaging in it well, when I'm not taking care of myself well enough to engage in it well. But I truly do believe the three things that I said in that talk. I seek out the people and places and books and talks that help give me, help remind me of the permission I have to take my rightful place, right? Mm -hmm. I seek out the community that I need to be able to like remind me who I am, even when I can't remember who I am. And those kind of things help me practice confidence. Mm -hmm. And the more I practice it, the more it becomes muscle memory. Oh my God. Well, thank you so much for just all of the different ways that you are so authentic. And by the way, we will put a link to in the show notes to that talk because it continues to to uh, spread so much important, you know, inspiration, but also being honest about about these struggles that we all go through is also, I think, important to have those honest conversations. So thank you so much for just all that you do and all of the truth that you, you know, continue to share through your words and your work. And um, we're just so grateful for your time today. And, um, you know, just happy to amplify everything that, that you're doing. I truly appreciate you all. I'm so happy you're doing this. And I can't wait to listen to the whole season. To learn more about Brittany's work, please visit BrittanyPacknett.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shipmakers and a special thank you to our partners at Tandem. Tandem designs and invests in bold, integrated solutions to accelerate gender equality. They have partnered across philanthropy, politics, and the social sector to impact the lives of countless people around the world and will not stop until gender equality is experienced as a human right for all. To partner, collaborate, and learn more, please visit tandemequality.org. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again. For more information on Marion Schnall, please visit marionschnall.com. Story producer A. Kirsten, research assistant Angela Joshi, sound mixing by Noah Fink, cover art by Kyle Hollingsworth, creative direction by Veronica Corzo-Ducart.